Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, the weekly podcast illuminating issues in agriculture and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are answered using a science-based approach with the goal of driving innovation to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Paul Vincelli. Welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss contemporary issues in science and technology with a focus on biotechnology and new innovations that can help people and the planet. I'm Paul Vincelli, sitting in for Dr. Kevin Folta, and today we'll be talking about the National Academy of Sciences' rather comprehensive report about genetically engineered crops, which was published last year. Our guest today is Dr. Fred Gould from North Carolina State University, uh, an entomologist and also the chair of the National Academy of Sciences' Uh, review committee on genetically engineered crops. And in fact, uh, Fred, uh, I've, I've seen your name in numerous uh, settings, including on a, uh, you were chair of a report, uh, as I understand, back a number of years ago for the National Academy of Sciences. So uh, yeah, welcome to the program. True. Yeah. Well, it's good to be here. Yeah, thanks again. So, um, Fred, uh, for the audience's sake, uh, what, let's start with, and for my sake, maybe you could just tell us something about your general career and, and maybe your interest in biotechnology. Yeah, so I was actually trained um, in evolutionary biology, and my specialty within that was applied evolutionary biology, is what got me to come to North Carolina State University in the first place and join the entomology department. Um, I'm very interested in uh, the incredible ways that insects adapt to anything we throw at them, whether it be insecticides or crop rotations or anything like that. So when the genetically engineered crops came out, it was something that was of real interest to me. I feel like I was sort of pre-adapted to ask questions about, wait, if we put these things out, won't the insects just adapt to them the way they have to any old insecticide? And what we did as evolutionary biologists, uh, our group and others, uh, including Bruce Tabashnik and uh, others, um, looking at are there ways that we could actually develop these crops and use them in a way that the insects wouldn't adapt so quickly. Mm-hmm. So that's what got me started down this pathway. Yeah, but sure. then, of course, I got into all of the other details about um, just 
how the insects uh, adapted to that, but more so the social issues about people's perspectives on this whole thing. So um, that's how I, I got into uh, the realm of looking at regulatory practices and um, governance of these technologies. Yeah. Well, interesting. Yeah, I wasn't aware of your background. Uh, and, and I'm personally very interested as well in this issue of adaptation because, of course, microorganisms are uh, as skilled as at, at adaptation as, uh, as insects. So, yeah, we, we share that interest. So, so this was a rather comprehensive uh, process. And um, I, I have this vague sense that it was a year and a half or something like that. Could you share with us the, you know, the details, some of the details about the process itself? Yeah. So the committee itself was appointed, you know, at least temporarily in August. Of course, this has to go through a lot of vetting and, and the uh, National Academy has to sign off on officially having people on a committee. Um, but somewhere around August 2014, uh, is, is where we started. And I would say that we were concerned about the fact that this is a controversial area mm-hmm. of dealing with. And I was really pleased that the National Academy of Sciences gives every uh, report committee a statement of task, they call it. And it's mm-hmm. usually about one page and it has a lot of things on it. But two things that stood out in our statement of task, and I'm going to tell them as verbatim as I can remember them, was examine the evidence for the purported negative effects of genetically engineered crops and their accompanying technologies. Mm -hmm. And then the one right after it was examine the evidence for the positive impacts of genetically engineered crops and their accompanying technologies. And that basically set the stage for us to get started And uh, we recognized right off the bat that a lot of people had these concerns or had these great glorious uh, ideas about what was happening with genetically engineered crops. So we realized that instead of our committee deciding on what the concerns and the uh, benefits were, we'd invite people in to hear from everybody as uh, respectfully and clearly as possible and consider uh, what their concerns were or what they thought as as these great promises from the genetically engineered crops. So we had lots of public meetings and webinars. We actually heard from 80 uh, different people, um, and especially right in the beginning at our public meetings, we invited many of the major critics of genetic engineering, including Greenpeace and others, uh, to come and talk to us and for us to listen carefully to what their concerns were. And actually, you know, this was a good thing because, you know, uh, we had to investigate the evidence for some of these concerns. And sometimes we didn't find strong evidence. In other cases, we found evidence that we didn't think we'd find. Mm. And I think without that public input, we may not have addressed some of these issues in as much detail as we did. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that um, the, the diversity of people and in, in organizations represented in the public um, uh, listening periods was is really quite impressive. And I think you know there was a point where many in the scientific world were scratching their heads about, well, you know, is, is this, per, this you know is this person you know qualified to you know provide input? And in fact, the very fact that you cast a very wide net and, and deliberately and, and systematically sought out 
major critics of genetic engineering. I think that was, a, you know, looking back, I, th- I think almost everybody, if not everybody in this world of science, thinks that was a very important step. So, yeah, nice, yeah. nicely done. And I have to say, you know, having the support of the staff at the National Academy to do this, which is not typically the way reports start out, was really very important. They had faith in us. And, you know, there were uh, people who were critical of us. You know, basically they thought we were giving a podium to people who didn't deserve it by bringing them to the National Academy. Um, I understand that, that that may be some risk in that, but I think in the end, as you say, I think it was worth it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, it occurs to me that I did not give the title of the report for those those of you who have not seen it yet. And it's uh, the title is Genetically Engineered Crops, Experiences and Prospects. And it's pretty easy to Google and find it. And we'll also include links to the report and to a file that just lists the uh, findings and recommendations um, later, later on. So when, when this, this podcast is published, you'll be able to find that information on the, on the web. The listeners will be able to. So, um, so anyway, uh, what, uh, this is a long list of questions I have for you, but what, what was your favorite part of the experience? Ooh, <laughs> nobody's ever get, asked me that get, before. Getting How it cool. done, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you get the print. No, yep. actually, I think the entire experience, uh, for me, it was new too, of exploring this kind of thing, of taking that risk and listening carefully to everybody and also challenging ourselves within the committee. I mean, it was a great committee. And we came from such different perspectives, you know, whether from economics or sociology um, or biochemistry or economics, you know, all these different kinds of uh, Mm -hmm. sociologists. Also our legal people, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so we had different perspectives that really, I think, strengthened the report. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I often say we had one rule in our, implicit in our committee. We didn't talk about it a lot, but you could ha- bring up anything in our committee meetings. But the next time you came back to the committee meeting with that idea or opinion, you had to back it up with some evidence. Mm, yeah. So nothing would go in the report that was just an opinion. Hmm. Yeah. So, so one more sort of question to frame this before we get into some of the specific findings. But uh, so then that you know you've commented on the parts you most enjoyed. But what about the greatest challenge to in the in a process like this? Well, I, I would say a, a challenge to me was you know most of the time was to listen to all the committee members as carefully as I could, mm. and pick up the pieces where I felt that there really was consensus and feedback to the committee. You know, that's a challenge for somebody who's an evolutionary biologist and, and such. So, but I also enjoyed that. Uh, so it's a mix mixture mm. there. Okay. Okay. So, so what, let's, let's pick out a few findings that, um, you know, that uh, are worth highlighting. And of course there are many in the report. Um, get, get, Tell us, tell us about some of those that you, you felt were most significant. Well, I think that the, um, you know, when we listened to the public, the biggest concern that kept coming up was food safety. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I think I'm, I'm pretty proud of the way we dealt with that in the report. Um, we really dug back into the literature on that um, and looked carefully at um, 
the different kinds of evidence about food safety of these genetically engineered crops. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the thing that was, was important was that if we looked at any, there were four different kinds of evidence that we looked at. One was the animal studies themselves, the composition of the crops, whether they were different, and then um, the health of animals, uh, livestock that, that have been fed on these for many, many years. And then finally, a comparison between what's happened uh, in terms of chronic illnesses uh, in the U.S. and Canada where people have been eating these crops and in the U.K. and the E.U. where people haven't been eating these crops. So all of those, taking all those four together to build on what is the evidence. Does anything stand out as being a concern that there are some health impacts of these crops? And I'd say none of those four kinds of evidence alone would have been convincing. But putting all of them together and not seeing anything standing out as a health effect uh, enabled us to write in our report that uh, we didn't see any evidence that the safety of eating foods coming from genetically engineered crops that are on the market today is any different from eating their conventional counterparts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I downloaded. I think I may have mentioned this to you in the, when we were meeting together in uh, D.C. back last month. But but I um, I actually stayed up late when I was very sleep deprived to download the report as the moment it became available because I was you know very interested in what the findings would be and it was mo- most interested in what the food safety judgment would be from the this uh, very illustrious committee and um, I, I was really impressed with the chronic illnesses component um, because I had seen research on the others you know animal studies and so on composition but um, you know one of the common uh, criticisms of the issue of genetically engineered crops has been that there haven't been epidemiological studies. And, uh, you know, not to, not to suggest that this report is the final say in, 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 in forever, evermore on epidemiological studies, but, but uh, this was rather uh, interesting and uh, useful information uh, on the question of whether there was any change in chronic illnesses that may relate to genetic engineering. So I was I was very, uh, very impressed by that and uh, saw that as a new dimension. You know, as an extension specialist, I, um, you know, this is a big part of what I do now is, is provide outreach on genetic engineering risks and benefits. And um, w- the, the phrase that I have um, adopted because it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, I think, conveys the findings very succinctly. And that is as safe as is the phrase yeah. that I use. And, and so yeah. – yeah, is that, does that fit for you? As yeah, a- so it fits for us. And, and I would say that we were careful in this regard to also point out that there are limits to what we can know from this science. Um, you know, you bring out the epidemiology uh, information. I think it was good uh, epidemiology data. It wasn't the way an epidemiologist would love to do it, but at least it didn't show anything standing out as, mm-hmm. as being in effect. But we say in the study, we don't see any evidence of a difference in the safety of these two kinds of crops. But we also say, look, it's very difficult for science to tell you whether eating these genetically – if you ate these genetically engineered crops for your whole life, 
as opposed to eating the conventional crops. Would you live one year more or one year less? It is possible that the genetically engineered crops would be better for you, but would you live one year more or less? And the answer is we can't tell you that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the same way that we can't tell you that if you take this kind of vitamins, you'll live one year longer or one year less. Right. Or if you have this much salt, it'll be good for you or bad for you. There are some things that are subtle differences that you'd need such high replication to prove that we can't do that. So if you're looking for an answer of, you know, the realm of just due diligence, you know, looking carefully, I think that there is as much indication that these are as safe for you as conventional crops as there are for most other things that we come across in our modern world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so, yeah, I think I, I just do want to also congratulate you and the committee on the cautiousness of the approach. And in general, I'm not just referring to this, mm-hmm. uh, this food safety, but uh, in the for the benefit of the, the listeners, um, we, we I was involved with a uh, – a discussion of the um, of the report at the National Academy of Sciences in December. We had representatives from various uh, scientific societies, and I represented my own scientific society, the American Phytopathological Society. And I think to a to, to a person, every all the outside experts that were brought in to discuss the report with the committee uh, appreciated the cautious approach that you all took in terms of framing. Um, conclusions and and um, providing nuanced uh, understanding of what uh, what you wanted to say. So, yeah, it was really impressive. Yeah. Well, actually, that you bring that up, you know, that was one of the other things we did is, you know, we want this report to be something that actually starts a conversation that's not just about a 20-person committee report. And inviting you and the other representatives of these academic societies was a part of that. And we wanted your criticism, not just your praise, you know, to tell us, you know, what you saw as any of the concerns beyond what was in the report or whether you thought we had gone down a wrong track. Um, So, and you're not the only group that I'd like to see us get input from because the whole idea is for this not to be just some report on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Good. So we're, we're going to hear about some of those other groups, uh, and we'll, we'll just take a short break. And we're talking to Dr. Fred Gould, from, a professor from, the, uh, from North Carolina State University. And when we come back, we'll continue to talk about the report by the National Academy of Sciences on genetically engineered crops that was published last May. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. As always, we're excited to deliver the exciting stories of how DNA-based technologies are providing new solutions for people all over the planet. We're learning more about who we are as a species, the life around us, and how we can produce better food for more people with sensitivity to this big stupid rock in space that sustains us. This podcast is funded 100% by Kevin Folta and comes to you free each week for your listening pleasure. We actively turn away advertisers that could defray the costs of this enterprise because that would simply reinforce the beliefs of the whistleblowing merchants of doubt that believe education is simply a tentacle of corporate conspiracy. You can help by writing a review on iTunes, tell your friends, 
write a review on a blog, or leave some positive thoughts on the BuzzFeed article about me, Fern Blaver. Most of all, share the beautiful stories of science that you hear each week. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast with Dr. Fred Gould, professor from North Carolina State University. And Fred, um, I know you've, you're kind of looking ahead to uh, involving perhaps some other groups in, in providing feedback on, with respect to the report. You know, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about where you, you may see the, this yeah. going. Well, you know, as I said, we want this to be in some sense a living document. I guess what, what we see is there's a lot of um, quick comments in, in the news, on websites and, and such. And we think that there's some way of elevating this conversation that would be good for the public, uh, good for science, um, good for education. And so, as I said, you know, we brought in these academic groups to give us feedback on the report. And we also asked you folks, you know, how could you use this in your college courses and, and so on to get students to really dig in a little deeper into this question, which is really not just about genetic engineering. It's about where our society is going with innovations and whether it be genetic engineering or it be robotics, where are we going towards in the future and how do we evaluate those things and help guide them? Mm. So in that same way that we invited you in, one of the things that actually came from your group was that we really should invite in uh, teacher groups, uh, people who are involved in education um, at the high school level, for example, um, and that there are professional groups and there are professionals who know a lot better than we do about how to engage students. We think that there's almost nobody you meet that doesn't have an opinion about genetic engineering. Mm-hmm. And that could be used as a great way also, not just to explore this question in more detail, but to get people involved in asking, well, what is a genetically engineered crop? How is it made? And uh, this is about science and where genetics and other things are going. So uh, I don't know all the groups that we could have in, and I don't know where the funding is going to come to do all these things, but I think that these would be good things to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that the high school teachers, science teachers, and others uh, are clearly a a sort of a a low-hanging fruit, but... um, you know, uh, I wonder if uh, I'm just going to throw this out there, and knowing that time and and money are limitations, but uh, I sometimes wonder about uh, whether there's a level at which content um, could be made accessible to middle schoolers or even, um, uh, you know, even uh, elementary school. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great kind of comment. You know, I think about high school, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, one of the most challenging uh, outreach events I ever had was in a classroom of fourth graders. And thankfully, my fiance is a social scientist, and she was able to help me <laughs> come up with some phrases. But it was really rather simple. I just uh, said, you know, if you could change plants, you know, in some way that you wanted to make them into something that you thought was better in some way, what would you do? And they loved it, you know. They yeah. Make make cabbage taste like chocolate, you know. But <laughs> <laughs> you know? well, that one came up pretty often, something yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. One of them, you know, just she said, "I would ma- I would make uh, uh, more nutritious food for um, poor kids," and I was like, wow. you know, I sh- I, I yeah. gave her a high five. So you know, <laughs> yeah. so uh, so anyway, uh, one of the um, topics that a lot of attention was paid to in the report and continues to. Uh, reverberate through discussions afterwards is the issue of regulations. And I'd like to hear 
you, you comment for our listeners. Anything you want about the regulatory issues, what was learned, what was reported in the report, what, yeah. you know, anything. I think it's such so important. Yeah. So, I mean, we looked at this in, in quite a bit of detail. And uh, this was a great place to have our lawyers there, too, and, and be thinking about what's good and what's feasible. Um, and what was really nice that I saw happening was that our molecular biologists and our lawyers really crafted something together. And this was something that was vetted by the rest of the committee. And this was the idea that, you know, again, we're not in 1996, not only have transgenic and cisgenic and all sorts of technologies come around for genetic engineering, but the way we look at genomes and other omics technologies, all these high throughput technologies have changed so much since 1996. It's just amazing. And so we now have the ability and people have already done comparison comparisons of crops in a sense that's basically fingerprinting them. So you can look at all the DNA in a crop variety. You can look at the RNA, the messenger RNA. You can look beyond that at the intermediates between them and, and proteins. You could look at the proteins. You could look at uh, the small molecules in the, in the crops, uh, the toxic molecules as well as those that are nutrition, um, and see are there any differences between a genetically engineered crop and what we've been accustomed to eating? And I say that, accustomed to eating, because uh, there was just a report that came out, that, and there have been a number of these, that compare the genetically engineered crop to one other variety. And we know that if you're looking at thousands and thousands of molecules, you're going to find some difference. But the issue is, if you go to the grocery store and buy corn in, in, in North Carolina and in Oklahoma and wherever else, if you look at all of what you're typically eating and what's okay, and then look at the genetically engineered crop and ask, if you look at the fingerprint of all of these and ask, is the genetically engineered crop really weird? You know, is it really different? Then you really have to look at it carefully and ask, what have we done? There could be off-target effects. And one thing we learned from our biochemists on the committee is, you know, you change one thing in a crop, you could really change something else. So to look at those things. But the other thing that came from the lawyers was, you know, to use the concept of novelty. You know, has it already, are we over-regulating things that we've already seen many times? You know, if you have just one more insertion of a BT gene, the same BT gene, should you look at it as if it was the first time you did it or should you learn from what you've done before? Um, are, are we more interested in looking at somaclonal variation for the kinds of changes we're going to have? So altogether, you know, we, we decided that you know, it was important to look at novelty much and, and the potential for harm much more than looking at the difference between was it genetically engineered or mm -hmm. bred conventionally. And one of the things that uh, we brought up is you can breed for herbicide tolerance using conventional breeding methods. And you can breed for that same herbicide tolerance using genetic engineering. Right. In both cases, if you're breeding for resistance to a new novel herbicide, you have to then, of course, look at the herbicide usage that's going to accompany that. It's not going to be any different no matter how you bred the crop. Um, so if you do other things to breed resistance into a crop or something like that, it's the product that matters. I know actually this is very old, going back to the 80s where the National Academy said it's the product, not the process. But the difference between then and now is that now you can actually fingerprint that product 
and find out if there's anything that's really different between it. Before, people would always talk about, oh, you could have unintended effects and you wouldn't know that. Today, if you had unintended effects, I'm pretty certain that we would be able to detect that. Mm-hmm. So I think that that's something that was very important in our report. I think it's going to be a little hard for that to be digested by the policy people, the companies, and everybody else. Um, but I think that if standards are set, some people think that's going to cause overregulation. But it, I, we think that if it's done the way that our report brought it out and if it's done appropriately, you could have good standards and it could be done in a way that would actually decrease the burden uh, for getting regulatory compliance. And if it's not done, then we'll see more and more proliferation of reports that showed, you know, from NGOs or whoever it would be, that will show that there are differences. And if you're not taking that into account in the regulatory thing, it looks like you're not doing due diligence. So I think we we were thinking that, you know, I I hate to use this word, but in a sense, you could be sticking your head in the sand if, if you don't look at these new technologies that are available to you. Okay, yeah, that's a that's a very good defense. So let me let me see if I can repeat it back to you in in the fragments of notes that I have. This is so. First of all, um, the you're using a phrase that that I really like, and I have not heard it applied before to omics. But for the biologists that know what, what omics means, um, the ability to study and determine differences in genetics. Uh, the messenger RNA populations in a plant, the uh, metabolites, the proteins, and so on. Those are all what we would call omics. And, um, and, and so we can maybe make that a little more understandable to the general public by referring to that as fingerprinting of the basically this, the ongoing metabolism and so on genetics of the plant. It's, that's a useful phrase. I like that. And so a, a question that came up, I think you've provided me an answer here, but but a question that came up, during the discussion with the scientific society representatives that we had in, in December was, well, we could, we could monitor and evaluate or, or rather detect changes in omics patterns in a plant, but we don't know necessarily what it means. And what you're saying is, the committee was saying is that at this stage, even just being able to document that a particular variety conventional or genetically engineered, that a particular variety lies outside the normal range in these omics patterns would maybe raise uh, a flag enough to require greater evaluation. So again, it it doesn't matter whether it's a genetically engineered crop or conventional uh, variety. What matters is are, do the omics patterns fall outside of what is the normal range for the crop? Am I? You're getting exactly, and and actually, I, I would say that there have already been quite a few studies uh, doing these kind of omics approaches, and it's you know people are fearful that somehow they're going to see something that's different but that is not meaningful. Most of the studies really don't show anything standing out, and you wouldn't expect it, right? If we're so right. big on saying this is such a precise approach, right? Well. You know, put your, your money where <laughs> your mouth is, right? I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. the test. Sure. I mean, we don't expect to see these things, and, and yeah. generally we haven't. Uh, yeah. But it's a good way, I think, of assuring the public that we're being careful. Yeah, that we're careful and looking for uh, issues that might be of concern. And so, yeah, so you made the point, so this is worth repeating for the, the listeners as well. You made the point that, that there's, you know, it, it comparisons that involve a genetically engineered variety to a non-engineered variety, even if they're closely related, isn't necessarily um, 
going to yield useful information. It's really knowing what the range is for the particular species. Is that is that uh, do I have that? Yeah, and and we say the species, but you know, of course, if you go up to the Andes Mountains and find some mm. weird, you know, relative, yeah, mm-hmm. we mean you know basically what's in the supermarket. Mm-hmm. Okay, right. What's in the supermarket? Okay, so uh, yeah, very good. So next steps. Uh, you've you've talked a little bit about uh, you know some groups you may want to tie in with. Any other um, sort of ideas that uh, f- that you foresee? Well, we we would actually just like to encourage your listeners to go to our website and take a look at um, the things that are not just in the report, but the accompanying websites pages that look at who wrote all the papers, you know, whether what their affiliations, what their funding was, so that you could see how, how we did this report. You could see the errata sections and things like that. So we urge people to, instead of buying, I shouldn't say this, instead of buying the book, uh, to, to go sure. to the website right. and uh, look at it there where it's much more of a living document. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it's a, it's a free download. That's what I've, I've yes. done as well. So, and, right. and I, I love, I love the way the National Academy of uh, Press uh, operates. It, it, it does have, allow you to purchase the hardcover report if you wish, or you can order it down, you know, download it and for free as a, as a taxpayer. So, yeah. Yeah. So, well, listen, Fred, uh, it's uh, really been a pleasure to in, have you on uh, Talking Biotech and, and uh, thank you. I do want to thank you for your tremendous service uh, to uh, the nation and to the world through this report. Uh, it's it's a freebie. <laughs> no one gets paid <laughs> to do this, and uh, it's a lot of work. And you have a job, and you have a you have a, a, a research thrust, and it's uh, it's really uh, really quite remarkable that that people. Uh, yeah. You know, take, take so much time. Yeah, twenty people, but I think that yeah. we see it as an honor uh, yeah. to be enabled, given that privilege to do this. And we, you know, see it as an honor that we have to be careful with, right? So, sure. very yeah. good, good talking yeah. to you. You too, you too, Fred. Thanks very much, and listeners, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Talking Biotech. Write a review on iTunes. And tell a friend to listen as your support allows us to deliver more about exciting science to more people. I'm Paul Vincelli, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app. C O L A B R A dot A P P.